Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome to the next guest of the Courage to Lead interview series, Matt Elliott. Matt Elliott is the co-founder and creator of The Change Room and the, the author of the, a book by the same name, The Change Room. Matt is best known for his NRL coaching career, but it is his most recent endeavours that are having an impact outside the elite sporting arena and helping everyday people. Combining both his qualifications as a Bachelor in Applied Science with Exercise and Sports Science, performance coaching experience and extensive research into wellbeing, Matt has created an excellent program which is changing hundreds of people's lives for the better. His passion drives him to elevate the well-being of others so that they can lead their best lives. Coming from a solution-based family and with training as a school teacher, youth worker and sports science background, strap yourself in for an interview that covers so much. A truly enlightened discussion about what works in leading people to see them truly grow. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. It is such a riveting discussion. Welcome to the show today, Matthew Elliott, um, author of a fantastic book called The Change Ring, Playing the Game of Your Life. Um, I must tell you, Matt, uh, I read it pretty well in a couple of days, and then I ordered um, a couple for my 30-plus-year-old uh, 30, 30 son and my 26-year-old daughter, so I've given them a copy. And then I just got a, an update from Booktopia today that there's another copy coming. So I don't know whether you're sending me one or um, I can't remember ordering four. So, uh, so um, but congratulations on a great book. And why I got you on the show today is, um, is your book's riveting and I think very honest about um, your life. So, yeah, so, I, yeah, thanks for that, mate. I really appreciate you saying that. It means, it means a lot. So what, where I go with these shows, with these interviews, is, is the interview is all about you. I don't want to do much talking at all, but it's obvious from that book that your life has had some wonderful outcomes, but it's also had some pretty challenging moments and days um, and probably years and months and that kind of stuff, which you, you hinted to in the, in, the, in the book. But I'd like to kind of delve. You, you gave me a kind of a heads up prior to the interview that... Um, that we could go anywhere with this. So I just, it, I, what I find in these interviews is people like you're, you're a definite leader. You're, you're empowering other people to, to be the best that they can be um, in, in a team, quite often in a team environment and in, in the book um, quite often when they're broken and they need to be fixed um, and you help them fix them. So I want to go there. Where did that come from? You know, where did, how does Matt Elliott get made? And um, if you want to go there, I'd like to know. So just to, just to 
there's two questions I ask every guest. It's just kind of like an icebreaker, I suppose, and get, gets you in the swing of things a little bit. What What's your first ever true leadership experience? And it could be as a kid, it can be yesterday, um, it can be, you know, what and, and why was that your first leadership experience? And the second question is, what's something about Matt Elliott that absolutely no one knows? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so my first leadership experience, I, I, I guess when I get, I've, I've got another book on the way, but I, at some stage you're going to write a book called A Life by Accident. So um, I didn't really, as a school kid, I was probably never really, you know, the best kid academically. And, you know, I went off, I wasn't terrible, but same with sport. I probably wasn't the best kid at sport. But whatever happened when um, there was someone coming to the school, and even the school captain would be asked to give presentations. I'd somehow, teachers, I must have talked a lot, I don't know, but teachers would always <laughs> ask me to do that. So I guess my leadership opportunities came through not really aspirations, but people must have seen something in me that I didn't see as a young kid. And even that even happened, you know, during my 20s and 30s where, you know, I, I never really wanted to be a football coach, but you know, the, my footy coach at the time offered me a position. And I, you know, by the time I was 33, I was a head coach. So um, I wish I could say that it was something I set out to do in my life. And, you know, these are the things that you need to do, but I can't really do that honestly. So that'd be how I fell into leadership. Um, certainly learn a lot on the way and you know, it's, it's been an absolutely incredible journey. Things that no one knows about Matt Elliott. Wow. Um, not sure about that one. I like fart <laughs> jokes. What about that? <laughs> well, we <all> like them. <laughs> um, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I, I do believe in tapping into your, you know, your, the child's self and you know enjoying life. Some people take life way too seriously. Life's too far too important to be taken too seriously. Okay, I just just for our listeners today, I just might point out that you are actually doing this interview today. Um, you probably left training somewhere and you're doing the interview today with me in the car. So that's probably why the the audio is not brilliant, but we can still hear. So thank you for fitting in the time to, to interview to let me interview you today because I, I can already tell. By some of the little things you've already said, um, and it's so, um, I think it's so relevant what you just said, uh, let's have a bit of fun. You know, let's have some fun um, in, in the workplace and in, in, our, um, in our things that we do. Um, so that's, that's a really good, good uh, starting point. So let's go then. Um, do you want to go, well, the question that I always ask now then is, um, what made Matt Elliott? And you can go back to school. Um, you can, you know, can you just carry through some of the things that that made you into who you are today? Like some of the people, maybe some of the mentors, some of the some of the hard times, some of the good times. Yeah. And just but... before we start, I, I, I might just give you one little thing. Like I've been a fan of yours for years um, before the internet, and it was my my first ever kind of exposure to you was a picture in must have been the Daily Telegraph and you're sitting at your desk I think at Parramatta at Penrith Penrith um, as a coach there and you had a you had this cup and you said if you knew you couldn't fail what would you do I think that was on your cup is that yeah that, do you remember that I um, do. so yeah so that's my first memory of you but 
that's enough for me. Where where do you, where do you come from? How 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 are you made? I, I honestly, when I when I do reflect on this, and this is not a short answer, Alan. It's no, go I, for it. Go. For I, it. I, I've I've had an extraordinary life. So, and I I, I guess it's this is also sums up everyone's life in my opinion well let's say let's use the rule rather than the exception most people's life you know i was born on thursday island up in the torres straits um and my first carer was a obviously a, a local lady and my mum was a nurse and my dad um was a, a ship pilot um but also started rugby league on Thursday Island, started basketball up on Thursday Island. So, and then I moved to Townsville as a young kid. And, you know, I, I grew up in a place called Palarenda, which was isol- which not far from the city, but um, was surrounded by a national park. And I would have had, I reckon, 20 boys, two years either side of my age. So that, uh, like, you couldn't have asked for a better childhood. You couldn't have asked, you know, I had two parents that, um, you know, in a time where, you know, when we talk about equality, that wasn't something that was really part of culture. But I can tell you that equality was expected in our household across all domains. Um, And I I really treat that as something that really shaped my life. Um, So I, I never really... Not because I, I consciously did this, by the way. This was just something how we grew up. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I played footy. I was the only white fella in a black line. But, you know, they, and, um, yeah, uh, that's not my words. That's their words, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I, I was yeah, called yeah. the Migalo, the white yeah. whale. Um, okay. And, um, yeah, uh, but, again, at that age, I never even thought about it. My... My mum was a matron at a crippled children's home. We don't use those words anymore, but so I spent every yeah, afternoon yeah. around kids like that. And so, so as I grew up, you know, supporting people and help. My dad was our footy coach, but you know, all. So I, I grew up in a family. I was the youngest of four kids, two sisters and a brother. I was a young by a fair way. I grew up in a family that, caring for other people. If to say it was a priority would, would be sound wanky. It wasn't. It was just what they did. So I emulated that. You know, I just followed normal. what they did. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. normal. I, I don't want to sound like, you know, we, we sat around crystals and burnt candles. We we didn't. You know, we were just, yeah. it was just the expectation in our family to do that. Yeah, you know, I went to, to uni, did sports science, you know, was supposed to be a school teacher, but ended up being a youth worker in Sydney around the cross okay i came to sydney to play cricket i did play first grade cricket but ended up playing footy um but again you know my i I end up in local government for a long time so what shape what shaped my life was i don't know being around people that set a standard that if you can help others you can help yourself um yeah, that kind of works a little bit the other way now. If you, you know, you can't give away what you don't have. Yeah. Um, and then probably when I went into coaching, yeah, I, I was probably up myself a little bit as a young guy coaching, you know, as a young age and wanted to do everything myself. Um, and then early... What, two, what age were you? What age uh, were you then? 
33, I was a head coach in, in the UK Super League. Um, and, yeah, that, that what a you know, wonderful thing to get exposed to. And it, it's, it's just a terrific job. You know, people talk about the pressure of it. They, they miss the point of it. But I guess, again, trying to give a quick brief overview of it. And then in 2000, you know, I got to meet a few people that early 2000s that really changed my view on life. You know, I got to meet a guy called Deepak Chopra, a guy called Leon Naxon, who owns a publishing um, place called uh, Hay House Publishing. And, you know, they really, um, really developed my perspective on life and helped me, you know, have a, a better understanding. And then during all that too, Alan, there's a bit of adversity. My father passed when I was uh, 13 and, you know, I had a marriage breakdown. I got four beautiful daughters, that, which is the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I had other, other relationship breakdowns, obviously got the sack um, a couple of times from footy jobs, which is never a pleasant thing. So, yeah, and after that managed to get a job in the media and, um, I own a business, a well-being business, called, same name as the book called The Change Room, and ultimately I'm back in, you know, doing a little bit of stuff in footy as well with the St George Dragons, which is where it all started for me as a player. So that's like a brief overview of it, mate. That's very, very well. That's the beauty about what I find on the show. Like you're pretty, um, you're pretty open right at the start. So that enables me to just drill down on some of those things and. And and just for the the listeners, because um, uh, I had a guest on a couple of days ago, and I can't believe where some of the listeners come from. They come from, you know, Belgium and Ireland and in America. Um, so, but uh, what, where I want to go with this is, um, is let's just drill down in 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 what happens in some of those things. So, so for, just describe Thursday Island. Where where is Thursday Island, um, and how long were you there? So, no, I was only there till I was three. I've been back, but it sits between the very tip of Cape York, the very most northern tip of Australia in Papua New Guinea. There's a strait wow. that, which is called the Torres Straits, that runs runs in that area. So it's uh, an extraordinary part of the world. Um, yeah, but and again, the locals in the Torres Straits are, are a melange of people really of cultures because you know can you imagine there was malaysian people and and um also a lot of the very close to um papua new guinea so there was again a, a real mixture of people and cultures and and the way that they live life obviously when you're living on islands um very healthy approach to life okay so then you said you, you moved to a place called Palandra, I think is the description, of the, the name of it near Townsville. Palarenda. But it sounded like it's Pal a suburb. Palarenda. It's a suburb okay. of Townsville. It's Townsville. Yeah. So you were um, playing footy with First Nations people and you were the, you were the only guy, only white guy in the team. No, no, no. I, was a, I used to be the only white fella in the black line for a while. But, you know, no, we had a mix. We had a mixture. Um, and, again, it's funny – I, again, because any, I remember one day, I'll tell you a really quick story. I, one day, because my dad, we used to have a station wagon, and back in those days, you didn't have to wear seatbelts. So we'd have about, yeah, yeah. we'd drop about eight kids off on the way home. And I remember we'd drop one of the lads off first. And then this is what shaped my life, okay? Things like this. 
And so there was only probably three of us left who were about, I don't know, a kilometre from home. And um, I can't even remember it. One of the, one of the guys made a, not a, I, I tried to make a racist joke or a racial joke. And dad, my dad never blew up. I never saw him blew up, blow yeah. up. But, and this is how it happened. He pulled over and said, oh, you got, you got to walk home. And I'm not going to use it. The kid apologised, and I was, a, I was a kid the same age. And Dad said, yeah, I, I understand you're apologising, but you still need to walk home. So he only had to walk home okay. But, you know, when you're, you know, yeah, 10 yeah. years old, a kilometre's a long way. And then yeah. when he got out, Dad didn't say, look, if I, if I ever hear any of you say that. He just drove, kept driving. Yeah. But it just impacted me in a way of, okay, well, that's obviously not the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it's like the next day, we that kid was back in the car. And you know, again, there was, I never heard my dad ever mention again. Yeah. But I guess, you know what? If if my dad would have sniggered at the joke, yeah. you know, that could have changed the whole way I was. So, but I, I never really paid attention to it as, like I, I didn't see the difference in us, yes, and I yeah, think that's perfect, because I was yeah. raised that way. And my first carer was a you know a local lady from Thursday Island. So I guess even before I consciously, you know, yeah. pe- people do it consciously. I was in that environment. My carer, the person that loved me, Doris, was you know, a local lady. Yeah, lovely, lovely. So it's just uh, it's coming through loud and clear that your mum and dad um, were role models for you. And set the time. Yeah, well, as yeah, my dad passed when I was thirteen, and that was a pretty tough thing for me to go through, or to understand. And it's a, you know, but yeah, they would. But again, we didn't walk around. Well, they didn't walk around. Sorry, saying you got to care for other people. They just did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they it em- emulated was, it. Yeah. 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 There was no sit down around the table and we've got to do the right thing by the community. Yeah. They just yeah. did. They just did that yeah. stuff. You know umpired at cricket games and we were footy coaches and picked up, you know, piled kids into the, we, we'd have to have 12 kids in the car wouldn't be extraordinary for us. Yeah, I'm losing you there a little bit. So some of those, that last answer was got all pixelated on us, but um, I've got, I've got the picture. I, so, yeah. so, so you said, um, did it, let's go there. So, how did you deal with? You know, you said it was a rough time when you when your dad passed away at thirteen. Did you did you go off the rails at any time then, or did you have other people step into your life and help you a bit, or how did you deal with that? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and I guess when I'm 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 as I reflect on it now, I guess you get as a thirteen year old boy, you get selfish. I think that would be the best way of describing it. I, my response to it was a pretty selfish response. Um, yeah, so, uh, but, but withdrawn. No, I didn't go off the rails and, you know, go crazy. I, mm. I certainly did went crazy later in life, but that's what you did in Townsville in those days. Yeah. Um, um, but, mm. no, nah, I, I just think I – yeah, it knocked me around. He was my footy coach. He was my mentor. I spent a lot of time with him. So yeah, yeah, it took it. 
took a while for me, a long while, till I was about 40, till I really understood it, to be honest with you. Oh, wow. Okay. So do you want to explain that answer? What What did you understand? Like 13 to 40 is a long time. What What, what well, do you mean by that? Well, I guess I never processed it. You know what I mean? I never, because mm. I didn't understand. If you don't understand, it doesn't go away. So it's like yeah. anything in your life. If, if you have a cut on your knee, you gotta, you got to fix that cut up. you got to deal with it. If you ignore it, it'll fester. And I yeah. guess what I did was stuffed it down, ignored it, not because anyone told me to or there was no love around. I just, you know, again, 13-year-old boy losing your dad, he yeah. was your kind of hero yeah. at the same time. He just didn't deal with it. So eventually I did, and it was just interesting. So the day that he passed, um, and he was a really fit, really fit man, okay, yeah. didn't drink and and all that sort of stuff. But so he, you know, he served in World War Two. I think that wouldn't have been that good for his heart. And if he was, if it was today, they they would have, you know, been a procedure that dealt with the the problem. But you know, back then there was they didn't have that procedure. So he, so yeah, when he passed. It was the only day I didn't go to the hospital. So when you're 13, yeah, and your dad's been yeah. in the hospital for a week, and then you don't go to the hospital and passes that day, you sort of, you, you know, it's your fault, right? Because yeah, you didn't go. Yeah. You beat yourself Where, up. Yeah. Whereas, and I, you know, again, without getting too deep into it, you know, 40 years later, I I was with one of my mentors, and he said, "Well, what would you do if, if, you know, if you knew you were going to go?" Are you going to do it with your kids there, or are you going to wait till they're not there? And that's I sort of went. Well, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. I wouldn't want to be passing when they're there. I'd, I'd wait for them to go. And it's yeah. you know it's quite interesting where I've heard a lot of similar examples since even yesterday. I, you know, I had a conversation with a close mate whose dad came out from the UK to visit him, and, and you know, um, you know, in his late eighties, and then got back to the UK and, you know, after seeing the rest of his family got really crooked. So it's not, yeah. you know, it's not a confined thing. Yeah, no. See, uh, you, I really appreciate you. Um, that's very personal what you talked about. Uh, so, but it's um, what I love about this interview series is there's so many people like you um, that their parents or if there, if there wasn't a parent, someone senior, influence the way of their life and how, how they look at it. And you, and you started with that. Like, you know, straight off you started, started with how they influenced your life right from an early time. One of the things um, that was interesting, you said, uh, so you, you kind of jumped pretty pretty quick. Um, um, you, you'd left school and you decided to go to Sydney to play cricket, but you want, you, you became a youth worker. So what... what um, what made that happen? And and, I, and, I, and a lot of the people I interview on this show are leaders of um, uh, like homeless homeless New South Wales and you know leaders of um, people that make a di real difference. So it's interesting that I'm interviewing this guy that's such a world you know world known coach and does all this other stuff, but he started life as a youth worker. So so what made it, how did that happen? Again by accident, Alan. Look, I, uh, you know, back. Back in the day, what happened when you graduated from um, you know, teachers' college? You got placed. You got, you know, you were. So I had a choice. I think I was going to uh, Tamworth, and then my my sister worked in local government in Sydney in Randwick, and 
you know, and to be, you know, quite frank, it was I got more money to to live in Sydney and get paid as a youth worker than, you know, so there was no choice. So I wish I yeah. could say it was what I wanted to do, but I stayed in local government. I ended up being a director of community services in local government, um, you know, at the age of 25 or 26. So, yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, it was a, yeah, a really rewarding thing to do. And I, I worked with, you know, I worked in Randwick Council, but also Sydney City Council and had various roles at the recreation centres there and did a bit of truancy work and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, it was, I loved it. I was a youth myself. I didn't realise that at the time, but, you know, I was a kid myself. Yeah. So, oh, gotcha. so um, yeah. um, it was a, yeah, I learned so much. Well, I'll tell you what I learned. My big lesson was, particularly in the, the really rough areas, is that I learned that 95 to 97% of people are good people. Doesn't mean they do good things. So these mm-hmm. were these were good kids doing bad things. Then yeah. there's, you know, then there's the other percentage that's just bad. But that's yeah. very that's, you know, maybe one percent, two percent of people are yes. bad. But you know, doesn't mean you don't do bad things. Mm. Okay. So you came out with a statement when you described that in your because you you ran through your life pretty quickly. Um, uh, and you and you made this statement when you said you were a, a youth worker and working in local government. You said um, you worked with a lot of. I thought you said you worked with a lot of good people, and, and it was impressed upon you to help others to help yourself. Where did that Where did that come from? Um, well, that was a role, really. That's what you had to do, and I guess that it was such a good teaching for me because why you can you know go to uni and learn you know things academically it's when you actually get in a in situations where you see genuine adversity Mm. and there was a lot of young people living around the cross for example in sydney that were homeless living in squats squats were a big thing back in those days yeah um that were experiencing real adversity now we actually understand it well it gets more air coverage these days um yeah but when you see people in that situation and good, really good young kids, you know, and that and the, in those days, the you know the the currency of the cross was heroin, um, yep. and you know you had a lot of young, you know, young females you know, that were you know working in the sex trade. I don't know how else to say that. Yeah, yeah. But they were just such lovely people, all of them. Yeah, yeah. But they were, but they were dealing with adversity, and I guess when you see that. Yeah, I came from a family that was solution based. Yeah, so my dad yeah. was a coach. My brother likes coaching. You know, I had a, sisters are teachers. Uh, so we were solution based in our thinking. So I guess when you get in that situation, you start looking for solutions. That's when you learn. Yeah, you want to because um, as I said, I've interviewed quite a lot of people that have been in homeless, the you know, high up in the homelessness fields. And that some of them have been youth workers as well. Can you remember one particular story, one particular thing that just made a difference where on you, like impacted on you? Yeah, it's I, it's it's funny, you know, when you do reflect on those times. Sometimes the things that come to mind straight away, and unfortunately, it's how the human brain works, is is not the good stories. 
yeah. Um, so I, I'm just scrolling through my mind at the moment because I I'd rather share a good story than the ones that 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 yeah. aren't so good because yeah the obviously because of the lack of awareness in those days the consequences weren't you know the when you had bad consequences they were the worst consequences you could get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, one comes to mind where and. This was in when I was in Randwick, and it was a, a local kid in Coogee. We ran the youth centres in Coogee there, and it was yeah, it was always interesting <laughs> going to the youth centre. When the, when the kids came in drunk, it was a bad mm-hmm. night. Yeah. When they came in stoned, it was we were fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was very interesting just to reflect on that. But one of the kids who was probably the worst of them all is now, and I'm not going to use names, but, you know, to – to run in and into him probably, oh, maybe fifteen to twenty years later, and uh, and to be a lawyer, um, yeah, you know, and a high level lawyer was pretty stunning, really. Um, wow. Yeah, and it's really weird. Occasionally, I, I was on a ferry probably two years ago, and one of the two of the boys that were still together were on. You know, one was the skipper of the ferry, and one was working on it. They they pulled me up into the into the bridge there with them. So it's funny, and I had no idea who they were, by the way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they knew you. Yeah, yeah, it's just weird. Occasionally, you stumble into people like that. So I'm scrolling my mind for for good stories, but yeah, the, the, again, as I say, the, Wait, the so bad ones. Let, that come. Let's let's go to the let's go to that the, 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 like those two guys on the ferry, and you didn't remember them. They obviously knew you. What did they say to you? Did they say, like, it's obvious that, um, like you said, you're solution-based, you take care of other people, and that's what your job was, and you, and you enjoyed it. Um, you helped others to to help help yourself or help them in the community. Did they say anything about maybe the impact you had on them? But is that why they came up to you? Um well, I think I was playing footy at the time, and I was just—I was at the Roosters. This was before I was at the Dragons, um, and they—they they were Woolloomooloo boys. So, and there was a a rec centre down in Woolloomooloo. I, I guess the nicest thing they said was, you know, when I was there, because I'm very obviously school teacher background, sports science background. You're very structured in how you want to, you know, do activities and. Yeah. I really made them so they basically said that I I created a very fun environment. So uh, it was Philip Park was the rec center. I was just scrolling through my memory, but yeah, it was the Philip Park rec center, and um, yeah, they were. And again, one of them was a homeless kid at the time. Um, yeah, they, okay. It was all housing commission down there, so I think he was living in one of the other housing commissions that he wasn't supposed to. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was interesting just sitting down and chatting to them. And it was weird. So they, as I said, this was, they were adults. Were, and, uh, but in those, in those times, they called you sir. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I used to freak out at that when I'd go there. I said, don't call me sir, call me Matt. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it used to freak me out made them call me sir even more. So, if, <laughs> so when I jumped on the ferry, they were still calling me sir. Well. Wow, that's pretty nice. It's pretty beautiful, and you, and it must be wonderful to see them, like they're mature and they're they're, they're thriving. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. really nice guys. Uh, again, yeah. I, I did pretend I remembered them, but the truth is, I didn't. 
Yeah, that's all right. Well, uh, you, you, I mean, you're such a well-known person, so. Um, oh no, but it's, it was also that they were kids. You know, they were probably you know in their mid-teens then, and obviously, uh, they must have been closer to forty than thirty when I when I caught up with them. Yeah. So when when you recounted your story, you kind of jumped from there into you're a really young head coach for the UK Super League at the age of 33. Yeah. So at what age did you leave local government and and become you know, what 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 came next? How did you become a rugby league coach? Or you, well, might, you know, was there were you a player I, or I played for St George um, over an extended period. Well, yeah. Played 62 games and at 28 I had to retire. Um, basically, okay. so many knee operations it was ridiculous and they wouldn't. They again, modern surgery they wouldn't do it in that way. Um, and I was uh, director in local government at the time and the head coach Brian Smith at St George offered me. Uh, I had three kids at this stage and it was a, quite a significant pay cut to be honest. Um, yeah. Offered me an, a coaching position, and yeah, probably with about four seconds hesitation, I said yes. Okay. So, All right. so I moved from playing to being a development officer and uh, on the you know, coaching one of the junior teams and being supporting the first grade team. So I went. It was really weird because I was coaching, and a lot of the players I, I you know that were in the team still I played with for extended periods. So. Yeah, yeah, it was, but it was, uh, yeah, again, very lucky. Okay. So there's between 28 and 33. So between 28, you're a, you're a director in local government, which is pretty high up. Um, and then between 28, you're like, you're the development officer for a, a junior side with St. George and coaching, helping assist coach with your, um, with some of your teammates in first grade at St. George. It seems to be a massive jump that in that five-year time you end up as the head coach of um, a UK Super League time. So what U-League's a UK Super League team um, in England? What happened so, in that five years? So what happened was Brian Smith, the guy that gave me the, the opportunity to coach at the Dragons, took a job in the UK. I won't go into the story as to why, but you know, very successful coach. He, uh, offered me to come and again um, I said yes in about four seconds dragged the family yeah. over to the other side of the world to be his assistant and because I had a background in sports science I was going to be the strength and conditioning coach um, and after being there for a year and a half I went early um, Smithy got a job back at coaching the Parramatta team so I took over from Brian then so it, okay. it was really Again, I wish I could say it was a a focused um, career move and all that, but it wasn't. It just happened that way. And um, yeah, but the the five years I spent in the UK were, you know, again as a as a young man learning his craft off so, such amazing mentor like Brian Smith and some other people I got exposed to. It was a really good learning experience, not just for me, but for my whole family. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? What do, what do you mean for your family? So you you said when you first got the job, you had three kids, three girls. Um, do you have you got four kids over in England? Yeah, one was conceived in England and born in England. Um, 
so yeah, that well again, that it's interesting. I I remember apologising to my daughters at one stage in the not too distant past, and they you know about dragging them all over the planet, and they just said they loved it. Yeah, you know, they started. You know, one of my daughters, you know, finished primary school there, went into high school for a year. Um, you know, my other daughter started school there, so having exposure to different different cultures. Um, it really gave them an opportunity to um, experience other other cultures and other parts of the planet. It might um, it might just help you, Matt, if you took if you turn off the video, your video. I don't know whether and just leave it. I don't know whether you can do that. Um, it's, that was a phone call coming in, mate. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So you might just want to give us a bit of a rundown what. Um, what life was like for your family over there? Yeah, what? Oh, like, like your. We lived. We lived in a small village called Bramhope, which is, was wasn't far from Leeds, wasn't far from Bradford, where I coached. Yeah, walking distance, like literally two hundred meters from the primary school. You know, it was just a lovely little village, a little dairy village. We had a beautiful house there, um, a local pub. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't ritzy, that's for sure, but it was just. Everyone knew each other. It was yeah, just a great place. And the experience coaching there, the, my girls became supportive of rugby league in the UK. And I don't know if you've ever been to any sporting events in the UK, but you know, 10,000 British fans, we used to average by the end, we were there by about, at about 25,000. They'd make more noise than 200,000 Australian fans. They, you know, they sing and cheer and they're really passionate. So my daughters learnt how to support sporting teams in the UK. So they're still slightly crazy with that. <laughs> That's nice. That's a nice story. So was there any, uh, um, what was, like you, your book hints at this, that um, there's a time when your coaching career was getting on top of you um, and there was um uh, a marriage breakdown happening and a personal breakdown as, as well. Um, when does that start to happen? Does that start to kind of raise itself over there or or is it when you come no. back? No, no, I, I was well after. I, I left, it wasn't really my marriage. My marriage broke down when I was in Canberra and that was, you know, for all the right reasons and that was no issue. I had another relationship, a long relationship that broke down then. I guess some of that was the accumulative effect of being unaware of how to manage my own energy and how to also the power when we talk you talk about leadership, the power of delegation and you know not just because you think you've got the answer on how the organization can run better, you don't have to do everything. It's it's yeah. Yeah. And I, I started getting in my own way and that Ultimately, when you, you're in organisations and you want to make a positive difference, it was all for all the right reasons, and that was particularly at the Panthers and at the Warriors, where you know, I was trying to build organisations rather than just coach the footy team, which, again, had good intent, but yeah. you know, when you dilute your, your focus away from coaching or the people that you're coaching, there's a consequence to it. So the consequence yeah. to it was I ended up not doing my job as well as I needed to. You want to, um, I mean, there's probably there's so many stories there. Um, and I think as as other leaders listening to you, 
can understand. Like there's different ways of saying what you just said. Like stay in your own lane. Um, don't do other people's tasks. Uh, 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 let other people uh, empower other people to do the jobs so you're not doing everything. Um, do you want to give us an example of um, that kind of describes what you just said? Like you 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 didn't delegate, you got in your own way, um, you tried to create an organisation rather than a coach. Can you can you think of a specific example that illustrates what you're talking about so that um, uh, a leader listening to you today might not make the same error. Yeah, look, I've got sorry, too many examples around that. But when you're in a when when you're head coaching, it's a big responsibility when you've got under you like a coaching staff of you know say and a, a performance staff of say twenty people. Then you've got perhaps close to a hundred players when you go right down to the juniors. There's a lot to focus on there. But when you start trying to do um, stuff at around, you know, around what the CEO and the general manager footy should do, and then you're starting to try and create avenues into pathways into the organisation that you want to want to build, that's not your role. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you know how to do it. What it does do is it dilutes your focus away from what you're best at. So people then don't feel safe around you. What I okay. mean by that is, is that if you're not putting, you know, when, when you're putting attention into the athletes that you're coaching and you know, you know, you know they're, what, when their wedding anniversary is and when their kids' birthdays are and what they're doing at home and also paying close attention to what they're doing at training, they feel safe around you. And when people feel safe, they trust you. When they trust you, they're more likely to, you know, not question everything that you want want them to do. They feel empowered through that trust. And then that allows you to um, start pushing stuff their way. But when you're not diligent and paying full attention and focus on what, what we're calling elite athletes here, there's a consequence to that they start going somewhere else for that feedback and the trust diminishes. And when when the leader of an organisation through diluted attention diminishes trust, well, there's a consequence for that. Yeah. So what it, um, and I think you've, you've described that pretty well, but I think people um, sometimes, like people know the fallout of what you're talking about um, as when when that happens in an environment where the leader you know uh, loses that um, connection that you said um, and the trust diminishes but I think not not many people ever describe what it's like as the leader to be going through that and how what it does to you do you want to um, do you want to talk about that now I'm at ease with that well yeah when when you start to lose people close to you that you love, and I love my players, you know, and I really cared for them, you know, that obviously has an emotional impact, um, definitely, but it also has a performance impact as well. So, you know, I, th I, that, I think that's the easiest way to explain it is, is that, you know, it, it impacts you emotionally and then it also starts to have a, 
a definite impact on your mental clarity, on your ability to communicate, because you're doing everything for the right reason, but you're losing these people. And yeah. it's easy it's easy to you know to dele to delegate responsibility to other people to do that. But when you're when you've chosen to become a leader, you've got to understand that your state's contagious, multiply that by a hundred. So what I mean by that is if I started yelling now, you know, that that impacts you. Obviously, so if you're in an inspiring state. Yeah. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm just getting rattled here. Getting phone calls or you're you all right? Sorry, mate. You're all right. Hey, Alan, I'm going to have to yeah, ask you a favour. I'm going to have to ask you a favour, mate. There's just had a my CEO's contacted me. Just he just texted me then too. I'm, is there any way I can jump back on with you later on or another time? Because we just had yeah, a yeah, yeah, issue. Yeah. That that's all. I just yeah, I've just been asked if I no, of course. Yeah, just got a young. I don't know if you know one of our young players is pretty ill. Okay. And I, he's just uh, yeah. They just want me to contact his mum and dad. That's all. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, of course. Uh, Sorry, mate. Sorry about that. Really. So welcome back, uh, Matt Elliott, uh, for part two of our interview. Um, Matt, we were interview. We're speaking with each other probably at least a week ago now, and you um, in your demanding and uh, probably um, caring job as as head coach for the Dragons. Um, you had something come up of a very personal nature for one of your players um, that you had to leave us for. So um, I don't expect you to go into that, but uh, um, it just kind of demonstrates how much what you do consumes your life, really. Yeah, Alan, well, just a slight correction there. I'm not actually the head coach. I'm obviously... I'm the head of um, leadership and culture, but I also do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mindset work with the players. And um, yeah, one player in particular, he had a real challenge. It's been in the media a little bit, but I always appreciate you not using his name. But yeah, he had a, a really serious, you know, again, not anything to do with footy, um, just a genetic um, bowel issue. And he had to have some fairly serious surgery on it. So obviously providing support for his family during that time the club's really committed to doing that so tough thing tough thing for a you know 22 year old to go through yeah uh, and it um i think it just says volumes about like you know the reason i'm interviewing you we wanted to interview you was you're the the author of that you know the wonderful book the change room um but you know in part one of the interview um, you've kind of gone into, you know, what it means to be a coach of a rugby league team um, and all of the impacts that that's had on you. And, and we'll go into, you were just answering a question in part one that you were just going into what 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 toll that can have on you personally. Um, so it, it was a really good demonstration. Um, like if you don't, if you're a person that don't doesn't care, you 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 wouldn't have answered the phone to 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 your bosses when the when you were doing the interview um, and you and you you were so apologetic that you had to upset me but it just kind of demonstrates your commitment to the people you commit to <laughs> which is lovely yeah and you know again it, it's not not a toll most of the time um it's actually uh, just you forget when you're around young people all the time that are committed to get better every day and they need to be otherwise they they're not 
they're not sustainable in the industry that I work in, but to be around young, inspired people on a daily basis. I know other people have a different um, stereotype on how 40 players or young athletes are overpaid, young people that don't have to work hard. Well, I can uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, what they do for an occupation isn't easy. And I can tell you just being in their company is uh, probably more inspiring to me than I could ever be for them. So it's it's a gift. Uh, but occasionally, you know, as you said there, Alan, you know, there, there are challenges, you know, with young people. I used to be one a long time ago. So yeah. I know that my, yeah. you know, the decision making around that, but also when you have a dream that looks like it's been pulled away from you, it can be quite challenging. Yes, yeah. And I think um, I'm just reading a, a book at the moment, another book, if you're like me, you're probably reading all the time, Um it's a book called Relentless by a bloke called Grover that I think he, that he coached Michael Jordan and people at that level. And he kind of touches, you know, everyone Everyone has challenges. Um. <laughs> it's a good book. It's worth reading that one. Alan, don't, don't start me on books. I'll, I'll bore, bore the hell out of it. I have read that one. And, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Obviously, um, probably dealing with the exception there rather than the rule when you're dealing with athletes like, you know, like Jordan, but in saying that, his approach it certainly has a lot of real, you know, merit to it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's. I even what you just said. Then I obviously didn't. Um, I probably wrote it down in part one. But you know, you're the coach of leadership and culture for Saint, for the Saint George Dragons um, first grade team and probably the whole the whole um, club. Is it at, at that level? Yeah, I do it right across the club. So even the administrative staff and, you know, work, you know, pretty much directly for the CEO um, wow. across the whole organisation. But it's, yeah, it, it was, again, initially a little bit of an ambiguous role where I felt like I was floating around. But, you know, it's like anything new. It takes a while to really get some momentum. But the momentum now is, I guess, one People are seeing the individual benefit out of it, but I guess collectively we'll we'll get a measure on that this year for sure. Yeah. So how long have you been doing that for the that role, the leadership and culture? Um, probably the last just just twelve months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, because we're in a role on the other part, but I'll, I will definitely come back and ask some questions about that because culture is everything for a, for a, for a family, for a team, for an organisation. If you get the culture right, everything else seems to just happen around it. Um, if you get it wrong and you don't stick up for the culture, it can just go pear-shaped. Yeah, and people really make it a complex thing, and it's not. Mm. Culture is just our collective behaviours. Yes. So, um, and it's it's what we're prepared to accept within our environment. So I always say you can have the best seed in the world, but if you put it in awful soil, it's not going to grow. Yes, yes. Um, but the opposite happens as well. You can have a really unhealthy seed, put it in good culture and it'll grow. So it's really when you've got groups of humans, it's about having standards around behaviours. And, ha and again, not what you do, but how you're being. You know, we're not human doings, we're human beings. Yes. Um, and if you're being, you know, someone who is committed to being the best you can be and if you're being someone who really wants to make the environment better, you'll end up doing the things you need to do, not the other way around, if you know what yeah. I mean. Well, let's um, – I, I, I know some questions I want to ask you before we left part one, but you're on a roll now. So let's let's talk about 
your role in leadership and culture because um, there's no rules in where we go and this interview is all about you um so uh like you've been in the role for 12 months how did you approach it yeah um at first i felt like i was floating around not doing anything and i think it was also a new new position for the club as well um so while i was picking people up here and there and starting to create a model of it I didn't I'm I'm someone who likes to have a structure. I believe in what I call smack behaviors, systematic, yeah. methodical and consistent behaviors. Something I stole off a guy called Kerry Evans who's a uh forensic psychiatrist who worked with the All Blacks for a long time, a genius. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, he yeah. Work, thinks he works in F1 now. He's I got the opportunity to work with him when I was in New Zealand, but so I I need that otherwise I can just float off with the fairies to be honest yeah. with you. And, and live in the world of concepts. But it, but it, you, when you're growing up a position, you've got to start conceptually, and that was challenging for me initially. Um, but now we've really got some momentum where, you know, there's one-on-one -on -one times locked in, there's you know, cultural development approaches locked in. So it's it's something that I'm, I'm honestly really getting a lot out of at the moment. It sounded a bit flowery even to me yeah. initially, but I'm... Yeah, you know, I feel like that. I shouldn't say I'm getting a lot out of. I'm seeing, you know, what brings me joy is seeing other people grow, and yes. we're starting to create that environment, you know, where people are are seeing real simple things of how you can make you know the environment be better for people, and it's not complex. You're, um, and this is what I what I love about people like you and everyone that's come on the show. The interviews are totally unscripted. The show is about empowering others to create a supportive, inclusive workplace or whatever environment or or community. And you've just you've just said that straight off. That's your goal in your like you're empowering others to 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 make a nice, positive culture. So you know what? And I've I've been so lucky. I stumble across things in all my research, and I, I stumbled across one, Alan. I, and I. And it was just such a powerful analogy. I, and, I, and it's on YouTube somewhere. I, I wish I, if I could quote it, I would. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but he, um, he said, and I always get a little bit enamoured by research, but he said, like, in our work environment, who here thinks, and I'll use Australian terminology rather than, I think he was Scandinavian, yeah. who do you think, you know, bags people behind their back in our culture you think it happens in in our culture in our club put your hands up if you think it happens and everyone puts their hand up yeah and you go well who do you uh, put your hand up if you'd like to work in an organization where that didn't happen so everyone puts their hand up yeah all right then you go well is anyone is everyone here free this is my ad to it yeah yeah is everyone here free not to do that Tell you because if you're not free to do it, just let us know and we'll give you a hand with it. Yeah, everyone's free to do that. Yeah, wow. But have a think about that how much again, there's accountability two way now between the individuals that are in the organization, and then all of a sudden, someone's doing that out of habit and they're getting stopped. Yes. Because we don't do that, and the research said that, like I don't, and I don't know where the research, what organisations it was in. I think there were more tech organisations. Yeah. But they did it for six months, and productivity went up thirty percent. Yes. Yeah. But then for us, and that, you know, it's not, it's not pushing through the ceiling; it's dragging the floor up. Yes. 
Um, so, and again, I, I stole that from somewhere from someone different. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, when you – it's little things. You know, the All Blacks, you know, sweep the sheds, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I went through and I, I went to our, our kitman. We've got three or two of them that are full-time. And I asked them how, how much time they spend up picking up towels and cleaning up bottles and stuff after yeah. our players per week. And it ended up being that if they didn't have to do that, they would be two weeks extra, wow. okay, over a year that they'd have available. And I, so I asked the players. Yes. Do you think that two weeks extra would, would help us win games? And there's only one answer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's when we talk about culture, there is a way to address this com with compact complexity. Yes. You know, and make it really sort of like a, a distant thing. I, I don't think that that's the effective way of, of addressing it. Yes. I, I think it's a, things that are you free to do this? Yes. Are you free to pick up a water bottle or a towel after yourself? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so what we're doing now is challenging what else are we free to do that's going to help our culture? Yeah. So it's not telling everyone, but then going, we go away and you work it out. Yes. And come back yeah. with the ideas of things that, we're, that, that don't cost us anything. Yeah. That are, but are the right thing to do. That'll make yeah. our soil better. Yeah. That's pretty... Um Pretty powerful stuff like it, what you're talking about is if someone's bagging someone else in what in the analogy you just gave your player says to the other player you can't do that we don't do that yeah, well let's look at it the other way if i'm bagging yeah. someone to you alan right yeah yeah so and we're in a work environment so is that productive for me if i'm bagging that person not at all so no. is it productive for you no Say I'm a leader and I'm bagging someone else. I've validated you to go and do it to someone else, haven't I? Yes, yeah, totally. By totally. 50. Yes. So it's contagious. Yes. If I leave a bottle on the floor or whatever it is or leave a mess in the kitchen, you know, wherever you work, and and I just think, oh, well, we've got cleaners, I'll let them do it. Yeah. You know, everyone. Yeah. So it's just an advertisement. So this – when you think about the knock-on effects of well, how does how does someone not bagging someone increase the productivity of the organisation? Well, mm. there's first of all there's a simple use of time that you and I just discussed, yeah. but there's also the mentality that well, well if you're criticising me or you're criticising this person to me behind their back, what are you saying about me totally, when I'm not totally, here? Totally. So there's all this knock-on stuff. Yeah. How simple is that? Very simple. Beautiful. And, yeah, it's really good. A good example. So I'm my approach to culture, just to finish off, isn't about you know the the psychosocial things and creating environments of safety, um, you know, having a united purpose, um, and you know, showing vulnerability. I think are really, really important. But a lot of people don't understand that. I no. do because yeah. I've read a million books about it. Yeah. But you work. Yeah, you worked in police, okay, and highly, highly competent people. But if you start, again, that have a really diverse skill set and need to, but if you start going them with complex things about, well, let, let me explain vulnerability for you and we'll talk about it for the next three hours. Mm. Or how about I talk about the human need for safety? Yeah. Because when we lived in claves and I could go off for ages. But if, if you just do it with things that people know the difference between right and wrong, yeah. And they decide to go, well, let's do the right thing. 
Yes. It just makes it easy for everyone. Yeah. Uh, great. A great example. But if you want to, um, like you've been in this role for 12 months, um, and I think you just gave probably the most simplest example, but um, do you want to say what's the normal day for Matt Elliott as the, the leadership and development coach? And, and an example of um, possibly you kind of gave, gave an example, you gave a hint that it's a two-way thing. You know, what's a perfect day, an ex a case, a, an example where something happened because of what we're just talking about, that you're the leadership culture coach? But I'll start well, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mindset development with players and staff. Yeah. So let's just talk about one. I'll, I'll do that. The mindset stuff is really about making young people understand pressure because pressure gets a bum rap. You know, a lot of people say prep, but I can tell you one thing for sure, Alan, is the, the most extraordinary thing you achieved in your life happened when the pressure was on. Totally. Totally. <laughs> Everyone's the same. Yeah. But I can also guarantee your worst performance in whatever you did was when the pressure was on. Yes. So pressure is yeah. not a good or bad thing. It's just a thing. Yes. And, you know, I work in a high performance industry and that's what high performance is. It's performance under pressure, which is, and in Kerry Evans, great wisdom is scrutiny, expectation and consequences. How many people watching? what the expectations of yourself are and what are the consequences if you get it wrong or right. So making young people understand the two reactions to that, whether you see it as a threat or a challenge yeah. and the behaviours that go with that and seeing how they can traverse from one side to another. That's one thing I do. And it's, you know, without going too deep, I also, you know, I, I'm into quantum physics and I understand the, well, I have a, uh, an understanding of the energetic side of things. So we always understand the bad news. Yes. Alan. So you understand the biggest cause of death and disease on the planet now is the perception of threat, not real threat. Yes. So what we call stress. Stress, yeah. Uh, you know, mental health, all that sort of stuff. It used to be trauma and, and infection used to be the biggest impactor on our, you know, uh, you know and on death and disease. It's yep. not anymore. Yep. So heart disease and all that sort of stuff. Yes. So you got to give the bad news first. So if I want to be angry, will I find the opportunity to be angry? Mm. If I want to be a victim, will I find the opportunity to become a victim in my life? Yes. So does it make sense then if we look at the other end of the spectrum that the biggest possible cause of well-being could be your perception of joy and your, you know, yes. and your and love and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And love I use freely because, like, oh, can I use rugby league? Yeah. If you like, if you're a player and you like playing rugby league, you are not going to perform at your best. You know, you don't like your kids. You love yeah. them. Yes. If you yeah. don't love something at the high, at the high performance level, you're not going to perform. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, you just, you know, and that. So what I try and do is make people understand and, and young people understand. So you understand what's killing us. Yes. And you understand how easy it is to be, you know, angry or a victim. And that manifests in your life. That'll You'll get results out of that mm. if you're that way. Mm. Physical, mental, and what I mean physical is, is that things will show up in your life to give you more opportunity. Yes. But if, you look, if you're looking to be happy, you're looking to find things to love, to be motivated, to be, you know, confident. 
you where you find the opportunity to do things that allow you to do that. Mm. Mm. This is the bad news that goes with that. It's much easier than it is to sit on the lounge than it is to exercise. Yes. Correct? Yes. It's much easier to get Maccas than it is to cook a healthy home-cooked meal. Is that right? Yes. It's much easier to have the shits than it is to be happy. If you work on it, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's much yeah. easier to be angry than it is yeah. to be happy. It's yeah. it, so again, the the the, the quote in, you know, is what in life of significance is easy. So if you want to be someone who is, you know, has a good impact on yourself and the people that are around you and the environment that you're in, you know, you've got to take the more challenging path. Yes. Yeah. Because you work with those people that take the other path. Yes. We yeah. all have. Yeah. And, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... A lot of my stuff is developing and making people understand that if they want to, again, for the one of a better word, manifest positive stuff in their life, they can't wait for it to happen to be positive. Can you can you give us an example like this? You you live this. I can tell you, you live this. And and some of the books you've quoted, like like the um, legacy book about the All Blacks, kind of touches on some of this stuff. Um, can you give us an example of a one on one? We we've talked about this stuff. You know you. You have to learn to under, learn to uh, embrace the pressure and look for the positives and and work. If you're embracing the pressure, you're not scared of it. You know you you can actually turn it into a positive. Can you give us an example in the last twelve months where, without naming anyone, you saw it come to fruition? Yeah, and I, again, we're humans. So apparently our brains are tapped 3.2 to 1 to see threat over joy because we're not, you know, that's why we're the best hunter-gatherer on the planet. We're not the strongest or the fastest, but we didn't race out of our caves back in the day skipping around, right? Yeah. We went out we looked around and made sure there wasn't anything they're going to eat us. Yeah. So we can't escape that. So you are going to see pressure as a threat. You're a human, mm. but how do you... How do you do that transition to seeing it as a challenge? There's a whole lot of things, look, a whole lot of things that you can do physiologically, mentally, and emotionally. So what I mean, look, three weeks ago I had an ulcer. Why did I have an ulcer and a, and a cold sore? Why? Because you were Tell run me. down. You were run down. You were worried stressed. about something. Yeah, you were run about something. Worried so about I something. had a psychological situation that caused the physiological outcome. Yeah. So, and if, if I... So the opposite works, right? We again more bad news before I give you the good news. If I got you to hyperventilate for four minutes like this, mm. what would happen? I'd probably faint. You'd, you'd, yeah, you'd get stressed and then you'd faint. So you're doing yeah. a physiological thing, causing a psychological outcome. Yeah, yes. That again has a physiological result. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. So. Does it make sense that if you can maybe breathe in a different way that signals your through your vagus nerve and your parasympathetic yes. nervous system signals your brain? And you know, police should be learning this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you can calm yourself down by using your breathing. There's other yes. things you can do with your body that signals that you're safe. Yes. So it's giving people that are in high pressure situations tools, not theories, but tools to use through their breathing, the way they hold their body. Oh, there's a study done out of Harvard University by a lady called Amy Cuddy who got students to stand with their – it's a really good TED Talk, great TED Talk for your listeners – stand with 
So they got 400 students. 200 didn't do the study, they, and they blood tested them all, and 200 did. And they for four minutes, so twice a day for two minutes, they stood with their hands on the hips in a power pose. Yes. At the end of the, I think it was a one-month study, their cortisol levels were down 40%, testosterone levels were up 30 The other group didn't change just yeah. by holding a pose for four minutes a day. Okay. So, again, it's making people understand that and what we need science to validate everything. Yes, these days. yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day, and all this is not new. Yeah. This is, this is not new. This is old, old. It's like all the new eating approaches. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Back in the day, people like said, "This feels good. Let's keep doing it." Or this tastes awful. Let's not eat that. Now we need, you know, twenty years of science to go, and, and yes. we've tested it on four thousand people. And you know, science is easy to quote, isn't it? Because you know, they just what's what result do they want. Let's use the science to get us there. But yeah. we need that now. But my my long-winded point there being is that. A lot of my mindset stuff is about giving people tools that when they're, when they're under pressure, performing under pressure, that they can stay in a good, clear state for as long as possible. Yes. Or if they're going into a state where they're, they're seeing it as a, a threat, they can get back to the state where they see it as a challenge. Yes. And we've all done that. Yes. It's not about being... It's not about it's about being a human. It's not about being in the flow state the whole time and teaching people to stay there. Yeah. Which is there's there's really good access to that. But it's also teaching people to go, well, you're gonna go into this red place occasionally. Yes. You're gonna make an error. Yes. You're gonna stuff up. You're in a high risk in industry. Yeah. But you know, you've you've got only got a certain amount of time to 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 get rid of that, otherwise it's gonna impact your state for the next half an hour. Yes. Yeah. I can probably, um, and I, 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 I don't do this very often, but uh, you talked about the police. So in one of our leadership uh, programs, um, we had the senior police site come in and she talked to some of our sergeants and um, future leaders about what you talked about, the breathing. Um, so one of those sergeants then went out pretty well the next week. He was in the city and there was a bloke walking around with what they thought was a, an explosive vest on him. But he was only, he, ultimately, he was just a bloke going for a run with a with a weighted vest with ropes. I okay. so, so, But they didn't know that. So this sergeant was the guy that had to lead everyone. And he was doing what you were talking about. And he's very, he's very um, honest about his reactions. When he was going to the job, he was... You know, doing the quick breathing, um, but then he remembered the 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 senior police psych um, what she said about breathing. So he stopped himself, breathed, and then led the job to a a good outcome where no one got hurt. <laughs> but um, so it's just a very simple example of what you're talking about. Anyone listening to this could give their own do it themselves. Yes. If you breathe deeply through your nose down into your stomach first, low then high using your diaphragm, that there's a thing called your vagus nerve that goes through every major organ in your body up to your brain. And the signalling is from your body, 80% up to your brain, from your brain yeah. to your body, 20%. So by using just like, again, there's a whole lot of other physiological things, using that, that process, that you're telling your brain that you're safe. You are. Um, and you're, you're, it's, um, you're, it's you're not just, rocket science, it's uh, simple. Your, it's really fountain, simple. your absolute fountain, Matt. Um, 
This might be a good segue back into where we left at part one. You said you talked about a couple of terrible times in your life where you got the sack um, and the per and the personal toll it had on you. And I'll just take you back to a couple of things that you said about what it kind of um, you try you tried to do too much. Uh, it diluted your focus. Um, people didn't feel safe or trust you, um, and you lost people close to you, and it had an emotional impact, a performance impact. And it affect your mental clarity. And the question I was asking you at the time was, was, you know, all all leaders normally talk about the good times. Which would you like to say, share? Well, what was going on in your own head when when you were being you're facing the sack or you did get sacked? Um, how did you? Where were you in your own headspace and how did you get back? Yeah, interesting. One. I'm only reflecting on that. Um, I would say I was probably in denial a little bit because I know that my intention was great. Yeah. And I know what I'd actually, the foundations of strategy that I was putting together for the you know the last club I was at, for example, were the right strategies for the organisation. Yeah. But that wasn't my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's the, it's not only just staying in your lane. It's it's when you're dealing, yeah, you know, when you're in a leadership role where the most important thing is the relationship with the people that you're, you know, you're leading or you're coaching in this particular case, you know, you dilute that for a week, you start to damage it. You dilute it for an extended period of time because you, you know, you try not to go off and save the world. Yeah. You know, and it, look, and if people don't understand it from a head coaching side of things. If you do it from a family side of things, you, you know, your kids are always going to love you, right? Yeah. But but if you only come home once a week and then sometimes away for a month, eventually, while they'll still love you, that relationship will be compromised, right? Yes. Yeah. So you got you the again the easy analogy is you got to water the plant. Yeah. And I was watering the wrong plant. Yeah. I was watering a concept, you know, of what what could happen rather than go, look, just you guys do your best. I'm What I'm going to do is I'm going to get the best out of these young people that are, I'm coaching, you know, yeah. and the best coach, you know, is just in probably the history of rugby league, Wayne Bennett, who's still around, is a, you know, his, he, that's, that's the foundation of what he does. Who are the most important people to him in the organisation? Who's going to win in games? Uh, uh. It's not rocket science, but if, if you decide to think you're smarter than that, you can do all those things. You, there's a consequence. Yeah. Okay. So that would be my reflection of it. I was probably in denial because I was doing it. Oh, come on, I'm just trying to make the club better. Yeah. But I was I was losing important people. Yeah. Um. Yeah. When it was a culmination of things, it was ultimately. You know, it's. It's been a gift because it's given me the opportunity to reflect on, yeah, you know, first of all, take responsibility instead yeah. of blaming other people for it. Yeah. Um, and then go, well, okay. So I know how to do leadership really well because I have. Yeah. And I know how to do it really badly because yeah. I have. <laughs> but not everyone admits that. So uh, that's what I love about your story. Good on you. Yeah. And that contrast for me allows me to one, show that vulnerability we talked about, yeah. but but also say, look, 
I'm not criticising you as a leader. I'm not telling you how to need to do it. I'm just saying that it, you've got to put your attention in the right places. You know, I'm not not saying that, you know, you're you're not engaging you know, your your skill set in a way that's not useful. It's not. It's just not going to help you get the best out of you know, that that part of the organisation that you need to. Yeah. It's like micromanaging from CEOs. Yeah. It's it's not sustainable. No. No. It doesn't last. That CEO ultimately gets some news that he doesn't want to hear or she doesn't want to hear. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, as I say, it's it ends up being common sense. Yeah. Yeah, what, do, um, what, what I like about what you're talking about now is some people are afraid, some leaders or some people, I suppose, anyone, is, is afraid of failing. And you're just talking about a couple of big failures, but you reflected on it. Um, and you and you learn how to move forward. How, how as, a, as an example, how old were you uh, the second time round? How long did it take you to get over it? And how and then you obviously got over it, and things are going pretty well now. So I think people just want you to kind of describe that. It's okay to fail. It takes a while to pick yourself up. How did you pick yourself up? That. Again, timelines are interesting. This relates to the individual, and I, I would have liked my timelines to be shorter. Yeah. Um, because I was in denial at first. Yeah. You know, I blamed other people for the situation. Yeah. And I was wrong. So, you know, you, that that period, uh, you know, then there's a there's a scale, right, where you you know you're in despair. When you get angry, you know that you're going up the scale in the right direction. Okay, right. Yeah. So I got angry for a while, and then I realised that didn't that wasn't that was actually not effective. And then I started to get to a, you know, to a place of hope, I guess. Okay. Um, you know, a little bit of sadness. You have to travel through that. It's like getting, yeah. when you're fatigued and you're totally exhausted physically, you don't bounce back to being in a peak state straight away. Yes. You yeah. go through, you know, you, you, know, you feel a little bit doughy and you recover. So I made the recovery period last longer than it needed to by not taking responsibility earlier. Yeah, wouldn't that be I, human? That not that part of being human and you've learned from it? It is part of being human, but you don't need to make it that last that long. Okay, yeah. If I wanted to, I could have been human for two weeks instead of, you know, 18 months or two years. <laughs> But that's honest. I, I like your honesty. Yeah. Um, and like if if I wanted to, I can validate other people's incompetency. Yeah. But that's what was it their incompetency that got me sacked, or was it mine? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if that's another big one is the word responsibility, which I, I like to move it to. You're free to choose. Rather yeah. than res responsibility sounds like it's a, a burden, but you know, I was free to choose not, you know, to focus my full attention on my playing group. I wasn't told to, you yeah. know, dilute my attention. So that yeah. that I made a choice. Yeah. And it was the wrong choice. Now, if I was free, you know, if I made if I also used that freedom to choose sooner that to reflect and go, you know what, I didn't get that right. Yeah. Because internally, I knew that yeah. was the truth. Yeah. 
I was just lying to myself like so many of us do these days. Yes. Um, and the truth is, as a leader, you're going to fail. Yes. At some point, you're going to fail. The good ones can expedite the the responsibility process by just jumping straight to that. Yeah. You know, not being a victim, not saying, oh, it's my fault, I need to do better, but yeah. going, okay, you know, without sounding too wanky, you know, what's the learning from this? Yeah. Um, Good yeah. Good a lot of leaders just, you know, they say that, but they revert, as soon as the pressure comes on, they revert to unhelpful behaviours. Yeah. Those unhelpful behaviours, you know, when they're over there feeling, you know, aggressive or passive or escaping, you know, they don't, they don't enhance productivity with the people around them. That's contagious. If Ultimately, if I get angry, you're either going to take off from me or you're going to get angry back at me. Yeah. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Yeah. If I'm intense with you, that's different. Mm-hmm. In a high-performance environment, and you know you're being in police, it's like if someone screamed at you to do something or if someone goes, hey, Alan, mate, I was clear with you on this. Yeah. You need to get that done. Yeah. But if I'm going, what are you doing? Why are you doing? Yeah. You're not hearing what I'm saying. You're just going, that dude's screaming at me. So yeah. do I scream back or do I take off or I just get passive until yeah. you stop screaming? Yeah. That's not leading. Yeah. Really good examples, Matt. Um, I'm conscious um, probably the main reason I got you on, on the show is is what you've done. And I, I wanted to know all about, about what got you to the change room. So um, obviously everything you've just told us is a really good precursor to that. So I'll, I'll ask two questions in one. You started a business called The Change Room yeah. and then, then you've written a book called The Change Room. Yeah. And anyone that's listened this to part one and part two can tell where that came from. <laughs> so um, so what, what was the catalyst to start the business and write the book? Um, well, I started the, the business, first of all, was based on when I came out of coaching initially, I did a lot of one-on-one leadership stuff. And then I partnered up with a couple of people that ran a recruitment business. And I just, what I started to learn was, yeah, even though I, I don't, I don't believe in stereotypes, I'd stereotype myself as a rugby league person, which yeah. is, you know, semi-dribbler, let's be honest. That's how people see rugby league people. And what I learned by that is, is that if you're not using cutting edge approach in high performance industries like rugby league, you come last. Yeah. And I found that the word high performance is a lie. It should be called human performance because if something works for an athlete, it'll work for you and it'll work for me. Yeah. So then I started getting, we did a lot of work with police that are on workers' comp, and particularly with psych injuries. Yeah. And what we found was that, remember that physiological and psychological connection? Yeah. So I got people like Anthony Michello, who recovered from a spinal injury four years, to come in and show them how he did it through um, eating and, and movement. You know, I, I use a breath coach, a guy called Nam Baldwin, who... Um, you know, has worked with the New South Wales Blues, Olympic athletes. Mick Fanning is who I met him through. Yeah. Um, he worked with Richmond. He worked with the Roosters. You know, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so people learnt by, you know, who were having, trying to overcome psych 
um, challenges all of a sudden could sleep better because they learned how to breathe better before they went to sleep. Yeah, it's not yeah. complex. Yeah. You can't try and get to sleep, right? Yeah. You know, the harder you try to get to sleep, that works a treat, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but again, also making understand people how that can improve their health and then talking about human connection. So it wasn't, we do have people with, like myself, with qualifications. And I use a lady called Dr. Ali Walker yeah. who talks about human connection. And we had other, you know, other ex-sports people as well. Who and you know an ex police officer as well, Al Sparks. Yes, yep. Um, but it was just common sense things that gave people access to well being. And we'd say, don't use all of that. We had eight foundations, and we go, don't use them all. Just find the one or two that work for you. They'll be your breaking points. Yep. If, say, for example, you sleep better, well, you might get up in the morning with better mental clarity and make better decisions. Yeah, that'll put you in a better emotional state which will probably help you eat better, which will probably help you be easier to be around so your human connection will improve. And, yeah, you know, it's yeah. just a cycle of things. So yeah. it was just you you had to find yours. Yeah. Um, and we started to see, like, some amazing results. I thought it would work initially. You know, and we used all the scientific validation for the stuff that we did, as you do. Yeah. But then we started seeing results. And... That's what kind of went. Okay, well, this is not just a concept. This is this. Yeah, you know, we were giving people tools that they could yeah. go home into their life. It wasn't about giving them concepts. It was about giving them things that they could do, and people's lives started to be. You know, they they, they started to re-enter functional life. You know, yeah, people with physical injuries and people with psych injuries. Yeah, and it's not again. It sounds fantastic, but it's it's just. Common sense, really. It's simple. simple. Yeah. yeah. And I'd written a book prior, Alan, and it was just a, it was a thick book. Um, I was told it was ready to publish, and I read it again. I said, oh, no, I'm not, not, I'm not, that's not going out under my name. Yeah. It was just a, a bunch of stories and a bunch of information. Yeah. Whereas I wanted to provide something that was easy to read, common sense, and then you could just look at that chapter and go back to it if you wanted to. Mm. You know, like, oh, what was that eating stuff or what was the breathing stuff? Or, you know, my my area that I, I, I specialise in is emotional regulation. Yeah, yeah. You know, and think and thinking. So what's – do you want to talk about that? Well, we kind of have a little bit, but – so, again, I, people talk call it mental health. I, I kind of – I find that a challenging term, and everyone I've ever encountered, and you know, that through my business that apparently has a mental health issue, don't don't like the term either. Yeah. Um, because you don't have a physical health issue. You've either got a heart condition, a sprained ankle, yes. tonsillitis. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. When was the last time you went to the doctor and said you've got a physical health issue? Yeah, they don't. No. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the mental health stuff is your, about your emotional state, which is a huge impactor, you know, when you understand how your brain works and huge impactor on our decision-making. And, yeah, so I just I just wanted to make that clear and easy for people to understand. Yeah. And then I showed them how your brain works and how, you know, emotions work. Yes. So we have our reptilian brain that's fully developed when we're born. 
And so what's a baby? It doesn't grow for the rest of your life. So your reptilian brain, Al, that's still sitting in the middle of, on top of your, you know, your, you know, your brain stem there. Yeah. It hasn't grown since you were born. Mm. So what did, when you were hungry and a kid and a baby, what did you do? Screamed. Yeah. <laughs> and when you were happy and you were a baby, what did you do? Laughed. So your reptilian brain communicates with you through emotions. Yes, yeah. I think okay. some people call it comfort or discomfort. Well, however, yeah, some yeah, people call yeah. it, I don't know, the mood thing, and I'm not yeah. being that technical. Yeah. So I'm just saying that's what happens. And then we grow yeah. this cortex and prefrontal cortex around it, and that that's, gives us the opportunity to do what we're doing now and communicate. But when something happens, like when we're under pressure and something happens and it, cop, you know, stuns us, all right, First thing is, is that my, I always use the example, my daughters jump out of the corridor when I'm walking down the yeah, corridor. Yeah, yeah, Scare the living daylights out of me, film it and put it on Instagram, right? Nah, they're good at that. That's me swearing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was my reptilian brain communicating to me through emotion, right? Holy, yeah. d- you know, yeah, through yeah. fear. I saw yeah. it was her. Yeah. Then I, oh, it's just... It's just Lucy. Come on, mate. Yeah. Settle down. Yeah. You know, if I, but if so, I got six seconds to do that, Al. Yeah. To explain that feeling to myself. But if I go, oh my God, I'm sick of this. I'm so yeah. good. You got to stop it. If I go over six seconds, my hormonal output will impact my physiological state for the next 26 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So have a think about how many people aren't explaining that feeling that they're having. Yes. Yeah. So, so that thing we call mental health, yeah. all right, is, is a big part of it, not all of it. Yeah. I'm not talking about PTSD here, but a big part of it is us having lack of self-awareness. Yes. Yeah. So we don't go, oh, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure today for this reason. It doesn't make the pressure go away, but you've explained it to yourself. Yes. But we ignore it. We mm. suck it up, mate. Have a cup of concrete, mm. you know. You know. So, but if we cut our leg and we ignore it, what happens? You just you increase the incidence of it. You you keep on, you go into well, the reptilian more over and over and over again. Yeah, but if we cut our leg and we don't we don't address it, it festers. Yes. And if we yeah. keep ignoring it, your body goes, well, that didn't work. We quite a little bit of pain and a bit of you know we've made a pass of you and still ignoring it. Yeah. Let's increase the pain and you know. Send it up through his lymphatic system, and or you know, so if you ignore stuff, your body's reaction is they've got to get your attention somehow, yeah, to, to address this. But we're not, we're not taught that emotionally, no, so we ignore it, yes. So your body goes, Oh, well, I made him a little bit, you know, sort of frustrated, but that didn't work. So, how about we turn that up and we well, just use anger, yes. Still stuffing it down, not paying any attention. Rage will work. Yeah. So you're driving home and you've been stuffing all this stuff down, and a, you know, a, you know, a Ute driver changes lane three cars in front of you. And next thing you got your head out your window, screaming your head off. Yeah, yeah. And then you finish and you go, my God, what happened there? Yeah, where'd that come from? Yeah. Yeah. So it's that's kind of the foundation of just. Create, you know, we're experts in what we do. We're experts in the places we go, the cars we've got, the, you know, the things we do, the people we meet, but we're not experts in ourselves. Yes. 
Now, we see our friend going down the street and go, G'day, mate. How you going? Or, hey, how you doing? You know, oh, oh, okay, what's been going on? How often do you do that for yourself? Yeah, not enough. Not enough. No, well, are you worth two minutes a day to ask yourself that question? How am I going? Yeah. Going good. Why? Explain it to yourself. Well, keep doing it. How am I going? Going shit. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Explain it to yourself, remember that, and then you go, well, you might have an answer to it. Yeah. It, we, I, I, you know, I really believe in the clinical approach, but, of course, we hang around ourselves all the time. If we just explain to ourselves how we're feeling and why, you know, somewhere between 80 and 90% of the time, we might have some really good answers. We're really good at giving advice to other people, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, someone comes in and, is having a hard time and you give them the best advice ever, you know, maybe, you know, and then the 20 to 10% of the time, have a mentor, have people you trust or go and get clinical support. Yeah. They really know their stuff. Yeah. I think you gave a, and I don't want to, I don't want to steal from your book too much because I want, we want people to read it. Um, but there's a really good, I think it's probably one of your foundations. Um, your, you, you've already mentioned him, Anthony Minicello was close enough to you to say you need to change what you eat because yeah. you were really because you were really sick um at, at one stage and obviously everything you just talked about um uh, personal connect you know human connection um the eight pillars and he was someone that you were really sick and you didn't know why um you were getting sicker um and, and just something he said to you and that it's in the book, um, virtually changed changed your future. Oh, uh, you know what? I, I'm not going to say save my life, but I was in so much. I was injecting myself twice a day with a steroid pen, mm. um, taking anti-inflammatories and painkillers, and not really improving. Yeah, you know, and you know, I've got an academic background in sports science. I've been talking about nutrition for a long time, and but. Yeah, and he challenged it all. Yeah. And so he gave me some stuff to go and look at and research, and there it is. It's all the research is there. Yeah. And within six weeks, I was off all medication. Wow. Pretty you know, good. So that, I guess that's the other thing is, is that you've got to have an open mind and be curious enough to go, well, definitely what was happening at the time wasn't working. Yeah, and the, the the clinical approach, and they, you know, I get to, I can bring it back if I want. I can bring the audio, autoimmune disease I had back, easy. Just change yeah. my lifestyle and go back to eating the things I was eating. Yeah, yeah, and I um, think this is this is where I like um, what you talk about. You've been very open about it in this interview. You have, like, you know, and the book talks about this. You started the interview with some of the people that have impacted your life was um, Deepak Chopra. Chopra, and then the guy from Hay House. Um, Leon Maxson. Leon that So these people all think differently to you, and then you've gone into your business where you've had um, uh, Ali, Dr. Ali Walker, Alan Sparks, um, uh, and Anthony Villicello, Nan Baldwin. Like, they all think differently to you, and you've... You've taken it on board, uh, and you've adapted it, and you've they've changed your thinking in the way you look at things. So that's you want to talk about, and we know that probably we're getting we're getting close to over, going over time for you. But um, 
Do you want to talk about the openness of how you've kind of openness in your willing to take on different ways of thinking and adapting it? Yeah, you know what? I I guess I've always been a curious person, um, even from a young kid. So I wouldn't say curious about um, – I'm probably more curious about people's intellectual content and, you know, IP later in life, but um, I've always been curious. So then when you get evidence – you know, that I've got during my time of where, well, if you actually do pay attention to other people and you sit back and you learn from them, you'll, you know, you, you'll elevate your opportunities of, of success or being happy or however you want to measure that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a really revealing story that I got through uni because I was, a, you know, back in our day, they didn't have, you know, um, you know, basically, um, software that could tell if you were cheating, right? Yeah. So, so I reckon I was probably one of the best cheats at university of all time. Um, they used to have microfiche things where you used to look down telescopes and look at past um, exams and stuff like that. So I wouldn't say, but all I'm saying is, is that I, I kind of learnt that tapping into other people's knowledge, yes, is is a shortcut. Yes. Um, and if you're going to go and have to learn about it all yourself through experience. You're going to take yeah. a long time in life about doing it. So it's actually just tapping into other people's expertise. Yeah. And Why, yeah, why I, the wheel? Yeah. <laughs> Some people say. Yeah, and I, I think I've got a reasonable level of awareness that, I don't know, I, I kind of, you know, some things are for us and, you know, and some things aren't for us. Yes. So if something doesn't make sense to me, I'll move to something else quickly. Yes. Because it's not because it's wrong, but it's just not my thing. It doesn't connect with you. Yeah. 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 And I've got a lot of things that I do connect to, right? Well, obviously, we've talked about a fair few of them here. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I think there's also a limit on that as well. You Again, you can dilute your attention away from things and, you know, be a – you know, not an expert, but, you know, understand a lot of stuff without actually being able to live it. Yeah, I think you've exp I think you've really explained well how you've zeroed in on it, really, like you, the job you've got now is the leadership leadership and culture coach, but that's just such a natural progression of the, the change room and your yeah. life lessons and the people that have influenced your life. So that's a pretty good um, segue into the last two questions that I'll, yeah. maybe I'll there's three questions. Um, what did you learn about yourself when you wrote the change room? Um, what a great question. What did I learn about myself? Well, I probably learned that I was a shit author to start off with. <laughs> um, and then, but again, what it did, it made you go away and then seek support. Yeah. And and then try and get a message across. Look, I want to make this useful, not not you know, not like a normal book. Yeah, and make I want to make it someone can read it in two nights. Okay, so yeah, I did I did that. <laughs> so yeah, so um, and I think it was, was not so much learnt, but it was a reinforcement that I I genuinely do care about other people. Yeah, and I genuinely want to make a difference. You know, you know, if one person gets back to me, and I've been so lucky with the feedback, but he just goes, you know, really appreciate this. This book's 
you know, help me or change my life for the better. Yeah. Yeah, that'll that'll do me. So you probably you just you, it's like you've got my notes in front of you. Well, what do you want? What do you want to? Re- that my second question was, what do you want a reader to take away from your book, The Change Room? No, I, no, I didn't answer it. I want them to take away what's useful to them. Okay. So you know what? Yeah, you know, when you're reading stuff, and I listen to a lot of stuff because I do a bit of driving, is uh, I grab hold of stuff, little bits and pieces. Yeah. I don't always absorb the, the whole book. So mm. if it's a book I really love, I'll have to read it three times. Yes, yeah, I'm like you. Yes, yeah. Because I'll read it and then I'll go off and I I start the, the story morphs into my story. If you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, to, to have done that for people where they they got their own story through what was shared, that would be the that would be the the biggest you know blessing for me. Beautiful. All right. I'm going to leave you with this last question. Um, and I think if anyone that's listened to this so far would probably uh, anticipate how you're going to answer it. Um, and I'll just give you this feedback. Um, a lot of people who listen to this interview will probably replay it over and over and over again to get to get your gems because there's so many little gems that you've given through this. But if if someone was going to embark on a life similar to yours as a leader, um, what would you recommend? There's a story at the beginning of the book. Um, it's a true story of one of Australia's first uh, chiropractors, kinesiologist, sorry. Um, and I won't, I won't use his name just out of respect. But he went, he went to go to China. It took him two years to go to China to to have an interview with the top kinesiologist in the yeah. world. Yeah. And um, he was allowed to ask three questions, I think. Yeah, and he got it yeah. down to one. And he asked, like, and I, I just love this answer because it's so much deeper than the answer sounds. And he asked, in, you know, had a translator there after waiting two years. Yeah. You know, and he asked a really deep question about, you know, to, to find my real purpose and meaning in life experience, what is it I need to do? And the answer yep. was, just don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. and at first, you sort of laugh when I, you know, first when he first told me this. And the guy's passed now. Um, incredible person. Um, I kind of laughed and thought, you know, wow. Imagine you know, I'd have the, I'd be shitty if I'd waited two years for that answer. Yeah. But when you start to think about it, yeah, just don't worry about it. Yeah. It's pretty profound, right? It is. It is. Have um, faith that yeah, you'll find the way. Yeah. Yeah, and when you look at, you know, what happens with worry, that's what they used to call mental health, by the way. Yeah. Uh, was worry. I read, what's his name? The guy that wrote the seven laws, that were the foundations of business. He wrote a book about um, overcoming worry. Okay. Which was uh, written in the early 1900s so yeah. the, the our mental health thing's not a new thing mm. it's a it's a thing that's been around for a while you know it's a human trait that really gets in our way yeah it's it's a good thing sometimes as well mm. but we over worry right so yeah just don't worry about it I, I sometimes 
put her JDW on my hand. Okay. Just to Pretty remind good. me. Yeah. Just that, yeah. And I, I think that that we weren't the whole, you know, experience of being here as a human, as a person is, you know, can be really compromised by doing the opposite to the just don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great thing just to finish on because it's so, it is so simple, but it is so profound. So, Matt Elliott, um, You've taken this so much further than I, and you told me when I tried to, when I asked you to come on the show, you said there was no, nothing off, off limits, no boundaries, and I think you've just shown that. Can you, uh, thank you very much for taking part in the, in the Courage to Lead interview series. Can you tell people where they can buy your book? Yeah, you're best off going online, so you can go to um, Booktopia or Amazon. Um, they're probably the best ones to go to. Um, yeah, and um, or you can go to uh, the Change Room website, which is www.thechangeroom.info, and uh, you can get the book from there as yeah. well. Lovely, thank you, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I, I just um, I think all the viewers, as I said, will be replaying this a number of times because it's just infinite that what your level of wisdom in this. So thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. I will. Well, how good was that? We've just been treated to a masterclass of how to look after the well-being of others and to enable them to be their absolute best. There's so much I could cover in summarising what Matt Elliott just shared with us, but I'll just leave you with this one little gem that he said towards the end of the interview, which I think sums it all up. You have to love something if you truly want to perform at your best. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much for listening and look forward to having you on the show in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you. Goodbye.